ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Luskin, and today I'm speaking with Jay Richards, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute with a PhD in honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. He's also William E. Simon Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author of many books across many subjects, including The Human Advantage, Money, Greed, and God, The Privileged Planet with Guillermo Gonzalez, and God and Evolution, which was Discovery Institute's first foray into the topic of theistic evolution. So, Dr. Richards, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Great to be with you, Casey. We're here to discuss Dr. Richards' contributions to a new book released in October of 2021 with Harvest House titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring Ultimate Questions About Life in the Cosmos. I'm a co-editor of the book, along with William Dembski and Joseph Holden, and I certainly hope you'll check it out. It's available on Amazon.com. It has contributions from leading ID scientists and thinkers, not just Jay Richards, but also folks like Michael Behe and Stephen Meyer, Doug Axe, Guillermo Gonzalez, Robert Marks, Walter Bradley, Jonathan Wells, and many others. So I hope that you will check out this book. It's the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. It's available on Amazon.com. Dr. Richards, you have two chapters in the book, How Can We Use Science and Apologetics? And another titled, Is Theistic Evolution a Viable Option for Christians? And while editing the book, I really felt that these are very useful chapters for people who are trying to figure out how to integrate science and faith. So thank you so much for your contributions to this book. Yeah, it's great to be a part of it. Now, the first chapter that we'll talk about, how can we use science and apologetics, actually brought back a memory with a little bit of anxiety because it reminded me of a talk that you gave at a conference that I helped put together at the University of San Francisco back in 2002 called the Intelligent Design and Evolution Awareness Conference. And this was back in the days when people would actually speak live at conferences. You remember those days, Jay? I do remember that with humans (laughs) in the room. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And this was at the University of San Francisco, and you were uh, asked to come and give a talk on whether intelligent design is a good apologetics argument. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, what is he going to say? Is he going to mix up intelligent design, which is a scientific theory, with apologetics and mixing up theology with science? And where is this all going to go? And I actually thought you did a great job of threading the needle in that talk, Jay, because you explained that intelligent design is an argument from natural science, but that means that it actually has limits as far as what it can tell us. Mm -hmm. It's not going to necessarily tell us all the apologetics answers that we want to have, like is the God of the Bible the identity of the designer, or how can we best harmonize Genesis with science? You said that because intelligent design is a scientific argument, and because it sort of is limited what it can tell us, it can actually help us to understand that there's evidence from the natural world that points to design. So you sort of went on a similar theme in your Mm -hmm. chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. Maybe you could tell us, does intelligent design have limits in terms of what it can tell us about the world around us? And are those limits, is that a strength of intelligent design or is that a weakness? I think it's a strength. I mean, really, the crucial thing is to define science properly right off the bat. And so, of course, when proponents of ID are told that ID isn't science, usually you want to say, okay, what do you, what do you mean by science? And so someone's defined it in terms of materialism or scientism. And so science ends up being, well, the search for the best materialistic explanation that doesn't allow for design. Well, if that's what science is, then of course you can't have evidence for design. If science is just an open-minded search for truth about the natural world based on observation, systematic observation, hypothesis testing, and the like, then there's no reason in the world ID can't be science. And in fact, even arguments against ID presuppose it. 
the very viability of Darwinism presupposes, presumably, that design is an empirically detectable thing. So the debate itself in the history of science suggests that it's got to be at least possible to have a positive argument for design. At the same time, because it's based on you know, this kind of narrowly circumscribed scientific observation, that's going to be there's lots of really important questions that can be answered, that can be subject to reason, but that are not necessarily scientific questions. And so that's why I'd say, look, you know, I think that it, biology or physics could tell us if there's there's evidence of purpose in the universe. It's not going to necessarily tell you everything about the nature of God. That's okay. And th that's kind of what you want when it comes to apologetics, because of course, apologetics is about making arguments. This is in a Christian context in defense of the faith. And so you need to appeal to assumptions and beliefs that people have that aren't already sort of on your side, that aren't already one of your co-religionists. And so if you're a Christian, you need to appeal to something that people already think to be true. And science provides that role. It's sort of the public square. And so the evidence of science is, is public evidence. And so what you'd want to do if you're going to use science and apologetics is say, okay, is there evidence in science in nature that points in some positive direction. And that's just not, this shouldn't be that controversial, that there could be evidence from nature that has positive theological implications. And I think, in fact, there is such evidence. And so that's what using science for apologetics, I think, involves. And then, of course, within the evidence of science is the evidence for design. And, you know, everyone on all sides of the debate recognizes that, you don't have to presuppose theology to consider that, but it has positive theological implications. Yes, absolutely. So maybe we could take a step back a little bit because in your chapter, you define certain important terms like natural science or scientism and materialism. Can you briefly explain what are those ideas and how would you define them? And can one support natural science, but yet take issue with scientism and materialism? Yeah, in fact, to answer that second question, first, I think if you support natural science, you should actually reject both scientism and materialism. And the reason is that both of these philosophical views about reality and science actually undercut the scientific enterprise. So scientism is a belief about the nature of knowledge, and it basically says the only source of knowledge is the empirical sciences. So anything that you can know or claim to know is going to have to be based on scientific observation. Well, the problem is that it's self-refuting because that proposition itself isn't the result of an empirical observation. It's a philosophical sort of assertion effectively about the nature of knowledge. There's no reason to believe that. And in fact, surely your knowledge of your for memory of your or introspection, that's not scientific knowledge, but you have every reason to believe it. Materialism is a philosophical view about the nature of reality. It just basically says matter is all that matters. The fundamental reality is matter, space, time, and energy, and everything else derives from that. Well, okay, that's a possible philosophical position. Science doesn't give us any reason to believe that. The history of science certainly wasn't bound to that. In fact, the founders of most of natural science would have explicitly disputed that. Newton, an obvious example. And in fact, I would argue that if you're a materialist, you've undercut the very basis for believing that there's something like human reason and that reason can get in touch with the natural world and have true beliefs about it. So I would say, don't confuse science with materialism or scientism. And in fact, if you really want to defend science as a truth-seeking enterprise, it's much better to reject them altogether. So that's a great answer, Jay. And as an aside, I sometimes hear atheists or materialists talking as if scientism 
is this boogeyman that's invented by creationists or Darwinists or people of faith to make atheists look bad. So do you think that scientism, the belief that science is the only path to true knowledge, is that a misrepresentation of the way a lot of people out there actually think? Or are there people who actually do adopt scientism unashamedly and openly? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I'm sure in this volume, we offer quotes both from philosophers of science and scientists themselves who explain science in this way. In fact, we quote in The Privileged Planet, a scientist from the 1930s who argued that even asking the question of whether the universe had a beginning was itself a non-scientific question. And he assumed that because he was assuming scientism. Now, the term itself is not often used because what people that are committed to scientism want to do is they want to conflate this philosophical view of scientism with science itself. And that's because science has a kind of cultural cachet and credibility. Uh, that's precisely why we have to insist on making the distinction. But there is nothing about the term or even the critique of scientism that depends in any way on any kind of contentious religious view. There are atheists that recognize this. Thomas Nagel, for instance, recognizes this problem. He thinks scientism is, is not only a thing, but in fact, it's a bad thing. Now, you also talk in your chapter about what makes what you call a, quote, good apologetic argument. And you raise the question of whether one should use an argument that doesn't always persuade people. You might find it hard to believe, but sometimes you try to persuade certain people of intelligent design and they're not persuaded. I mean, I've tried for years yeah. to persuade Richard Dawkins of intelligent design and I've yet to be successful. Actually, that's not true, but I'm pretty sure if it was true, I would have difficulty persuading him. So, Right. Yeah. I think that a good argument is an argument that can persuade the persuadable. Now, of course, philosophically, you want an argument to be both sound and valid, but there's lots of sound and valid arguments that are based on premises that certain people don't, they don't buy. And so even if it's a sound and valid argument, but it appeals to a premise that somebody doesn't believe, it's not going to be persuasive. On the other hand, you can raise the standard so high that it's like, well, I can't persuade Richard Dawkins, therefore this must be a bad argument. That's just not how human reason works. People can always resist an argument, no matter how powerful. And so what I say is a good argument can be one that's yes, sound and valid, but also persuadable for the rational fence sitter. That is a person that's open to the argument and to evidence, but not yet persuaded. So the people sort of outside the circle of agreement, but are open to it. And so that's what you want you to test. Okay, is this a good argument? Is this the sort of thing that would persuade someone? Is this an argument for design persuadable to somebody that doesn't believe in design, but is open to the possibility? I think that's the real test of a, of a good argument. And that's what is sort of the test long-term and whether you know a particular intellectual movement is successful or not. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I recently did an interview with Jonathan Wells about his contributions to the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. And we talked about the fact that some people actually are more persuaded of intelligent design than they let on. There was an article in the journal Nature a few years back, which said that some people actually self-censor their criticisms of Darwinism because they're afraid of leading credence to intelligent design. And I found that very interesting that maybe there's actually some suppression of persuasion mm -hmm. towards intelligent design because people are afraid of where this all might lead. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem is that unlike other sort of scientific disputes, this one has huge metaphysical implications. And so I think in some ways, that's, that's the reason it's so darn difficult to get a rational conversation. So any of us, if 
been involved in an idea over the years know that it's actually really hard to find a critic that can even summarize our own argument accurately. So we always are so excited when a critic actually <laughs> at least summarizes the argument. But I think it's because it's like, well, if there's design in the universe, materialism might be true. That might be, well, maybe there's a God. And if there's a God, maybe he has an opinion about how I'm living my life. And I don't like that. So it's just like, let's just nip this in the bud. And that's a really is a problem. But that tells you that there are non-rational factors involved that sometimes prevent people from going one way or the other. Nevertheless, I think it's our, it's our moral duty. It's an intellectual virtue to develop arguments that, that are good, despite these kind of sociological factors that, that you know, circle around it. Yeah, once you bring in divine authorities, arguments and persuadability get complicated very quickly. Yeah. But this next question I want to ask you, Jay, I know that you could go on probably for hours to answer it, but maybe could you give us a very, very quick bullet point answer to this question? And that is, what do you consider to be good arguments for design? People can read your chapter in the book if they want to get more details. So what are you, yeah. your top arguments for design? The top arguments would be, well, I think the design argument connects to the the cosmological argument for the beginning of the universe, the Kalam argument when you're talking about in time. So I think that's a strong one. I think the fine tuning of the physical constants, parameters and initial conditions and laws, it's a strong one. Uh, I think the argument that we develop in the privileged planet of, of this conjunction of the conditions for life and discoverability, that's one. The origin of life argument, which is really the origin of information argument that Steve Meyer mounts. And then, you know, the biological complexity itself, whether you're talking about animal body plans or the molecular machines of Mike Behe uh, or the systems that Doug Axe writes about. I think all of those are positive arguments for design. And then I think the argument from human reason is actually a really powerful one in which you sort of have an intersection of psychology, philosophy, and neuroscience. But I think those are, those are sort of the big loci in nature where I think design just it just screams out. I think there's a bunch of other places, but I think those are the sort of, sort of the bright lights. That's a great list. And I encourage our listeners to go check out Dr. Richard's contributions to the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith for more details on those arguments. It's available on Amazon. So Jay, now there are some Christians and people of faith who are skeptical of these design arguments, and they are often called theistic evolutionists or evolutionary creationists, as they these days like to be called. And so what is the first thing that you say to someone when they tell you that they are a theistic evolutionist? Yeah, I ask them, what, what do they mean by evolution? Or if, you know, if I think they're confused, I might say, what do you mean by God? And what do you mean by evolution? Because theistic evolution essentially implies that it's a person who thinks that theism in some sense and evolution in some sense are both true. Okay, but the devil's in the details. And God could be the details too, incidentally, but you know, evolution, because it can mean so many different things, can mean something completely uncontroversial or something highly tendentious. And the evidence for different definitions of evolution varies so dramatically that you got to get clear what you mean by evolution to figure out, okay, is it this theistic evolutionist, or are they really, this is nothing controversial, or are they trying to square a circle or, or something else? Yeah, you have a chapter on theistic evolution in the book, and you talk about how someone might define evolution as mere change over time or the whole blind watchmaker thesis that all of life's diversity arose via an unguided process. So that raises the question, in your common experience, I understand people can define evolution different ways, but in your typical experience, is saying yeah. that you're a theistic evolutionist a trivial statement that nobody would disagree with or a few people would disagree with, or is it a totally incoherent statement that is very controversial? Which side of that spectrum does theistic evolution typically fall on? 
It depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to just a random Christian who maybe has this vague sense that evolution is true and they don't really have the category straight, but they also think God really did stuff. If you press them, usually what they have in mind is the highly teleological version of common ancestry in which God is really working in nature to guide the history of life toward a particular outcome, right? So it's teleological, it's purposeful. That's what the random Christian will have in mind that says that. Academics that are in this debate that are theistic evolutionists are mostly theistic Darwinists. And they're the ones, even though they're the academics that I think are actually holding somewhat incoherent positions, because what they're trying to do is square traditional theism and Christianity in most cases with fully Darwinian evolution, which is, as its theorists state, an ateleological view in which there is no purpose, there is no design. And so they're wanting to say both that the natural world is designed and the result of purpose, but also that it's not. And that's just, I'm sorry, that's just not a coherent position. It's understandable why you'd want to take that position if you're a Christian in the academy, but that it's, I think it's a non-starter intellectually. You're going to have to make some decisions about, about issues. And so you're either going to have a square or you're going to have a circle. Yeah, I think that your answer was right on the money. And actually what that means is that what most people mean by theistic evolution is more in the middle of that spectrum, sort mm -hmm. of the God-guided evolution. And that viewpoint, Jay, wouldn't you say, is sort of a very nice description <laughs> of what a lot of people think of when they say intelligent design. Yeah. So even though they call themselves or think that they are theistic evolutionists, if they were to think carefully, they're actually proponents of intelligent design. That's right. And that's actually a much more intuitive position if you haven't looked at the details. And that's what people that are sincere Christians, I think you just, look, you think God actually was involved in the world. And so, of course, you're going to think that. And maybe if you thought much about it, you think, well, some of this kind of Darwinian claims about natural selection or random variation seems a little too much. What they don't realize is that they're so radically departing from Orthodox Darwinism that they're really, they would be considered completely off the reservation for Darwinists. And in fact, if they think that design is doing real work there, then they're actually proponents of design and they just don't realize it. So my last question for you, you kind of got into a little bit already, but what do mainstream evolutionary biologists mean when they say the term evolution? And is their view compatible with theism? I know you kind of got into this a little bit already, yeah. but let's talk about just the mainstream evolutionary biology Absolutely. view of evolution and, and what that implies. The mainstream biological view of evolution, it's just defined straight out as an alternative to design. It is a way of explaining biological complexity or apparent design in terms of a purely materialistic and impersonal process, right? And so you just get quote after quote after quote. You've done these surveys of biological textbooks. They don't just mean, well, things change over time or certain things share a common ancestor or natural selection explains some things, which nobody disputes. They really intend it to be this alternative to a purposeful explanation about the natural world. And that distinguishes Darwinian theory from other scientific theories who usually don't have a theology, uh, right? A kind of commitment against teleology as a part of the theory. That's why Darwinism is always a strange kind of fit, I think, when you're talking about natural science. Nobody has a Newton fish or Einstein fish on their cars, but people have Darwin fish. I think that tells you something about the nature of Darwinism. And that, so that is always the problem is that biological evolution, as it's generally taught in public schools and in the textbook orthodoxy, is it is already from the start committed 
to an anti-design view of the biological world. And that's just the kind of reality of the situation. And I think Christians in particular are better just facing that squarely than imagining that we're going to play these word games and solve the problems. Okay, well, Jay, thank you so much for helping us to tease apart these very difficult and important issues, scientism, materialism, theistic evolution, intelligent design, science and religion. You are very good and a master, in fact, of helping us to parse out these issues and thread these needles. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Casey. Great to be with you. Well, if you want to get more details on how we can understand theistic evolution and whether science can be used in apologetics, check out Jay Richards' chapters in the new book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. It's available on Amazon. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.